Chapter 2. Why Religious Change Doesn't Work I walked out into our backyard one Saturday and encountered my four-year-old daughter, Karis, pouring water from a watering can into her sandbox. When I asked her what she was doing, she replied without looking up, Daddy, I need the sand to grow. See, there's not much left. I tried to explain to her, sand does not grow by watering it because, of course, it is not alive. The only way to increase the amount of sand in the sandbox is for daddy to pour more sand in. That's how religion changes you. Religion pours it on. It gives you a lot of stuff to do. Bible studies to go to. New habits to add to your life. Things to say and not to say, etc. That's what some have called mechanical change. That's fundamentally different from how a tree grows. A tree grows and bears fruit because it is alive. Fruits spring up naturally because of the life inside. This is how the gospel changes you. Your behavior changes because you change. This is an organic change. Most strategies you hear for growth in Christ end up being, for all their Christian language, mechanical changes. We get busy for God. We add new spiritual disciplines. We give money. We do missions. In the old days, we even turned in an offering envelope that charted our spiritual busyness for the week. The envelope asked questions like, have you read your Bible this week? Have you prayed? Have you shared your faith with someone? Is there a tithe, building fund, mission pledge, contribution in this envelope? It used to be a game to me to see if I could commence and complete all the elements on the envelope from the time the offering started to the time it got back to me. I shared Christ with my poor sister, who sat beside me in church, every week for a couple of years. The problem with mechanical changes is that they quickly become wearisome to you. That's not to say you shouldn't ever do things that you don't want to do. Just that if the extent of your Christianity is achieving the right behavioral standard, you are setting yourself up for disaster. You are laying religion onto a heart that loves other things. And whether you ever articulate it or not, you will resent God holding you captive to do stuff you wouldn't otherwise be doing if he weren't threatening damnation. The reason mechanical changes don't really work for us goes back to the core of what's wrong with us. All the way back to our original sin in the Garden of Eden. I want to take us there in this chapter because only then can we understand why religion won't work and why only the gospel can fix us. Functional gods. Our original sin was idolatry. You may have a hard time seeing that. Idolatry? I don't see them bowing down or praying to an idol. That's because we sometimes fail to grasp what worship really is. You worship whatever it is you deem most essential for life and happiness. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Its fruit was so important they were willing to disobey God to get it. For us, it may be money, the praise of others, a good marriage, a healthy family, achieving a certain status at work, or experiencing some kind of sensual pleasure. When something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, you are worshiping it. You are willing to say no to God to get it. The Hebrew word for glory, kabod, literally means weight. To give something glory in your life or to worship it is to give it so much weight that you couldn't imagine doing life without it. 
An idol can be almost anything, even the good gifts of God, family, friends, dreams, even the church. These are all good things, of course, but they become idols when we assign them God-type weight. Ultimately, idolatry is behind all of our sin. We place a greater weight on something other than God. Whatever those things are that we feel like we can't live without and that control our behaviors are functional gods to us. We may not prostrate our bodies before them, but we prostrate our hearts. All people, religions, religious or not, have gods because all are worshipers. Many feel like they are not worshipers because they aren't religiously active. You can no more turn off your drive for worship by not being religious than you can turn off your sex drive by remaining single. All human beings have something they believe to be essential for life, something that they could not imagine feeling happy or fulfilled without. Whatever that thing is, you are worshiping it, biblically speaking. Functional saviors. The first sensation Adam and Eve had after the thrill of eating the forbidden fruit was a sense of their own nakedness. Were they naked before eating the fruit? Yes. But only after they had eaten the fruit did their nakedness bother them. What had changed? The early church fathers, guys like Gregory of Nazanaeus and Athanasius, explained that prior to their sin, Adam and Eve had been clothed in the love and acceptance of God, so their nakedness did not bother them. Now, having stripped themselves of God's love and acceptance, they were left with a sense of exposure, fear, guilt, and shame. So what did Adam and Eve do about that sense of nakedness? The same thing any of us do when we feel naked. They looked for something to put on. If you have a problem sleepwalking and suddenly woke up one night standing in Super Walmart buck naked, you probably wouldn't use that opportunity to pick up a few odds and ends you needed for the house. Instead, you'd immediately look for the clothing section and find something to cover yourself and pray that no one you know had seen you. Adam and Eve did essentially the same thing. They made themselves coverings of fig leaves and hid from God. Their clothes made them feel more acceptable. We have all been on that same quest ever since. We try to cover the shame of our nakedness by establishing our worthiness in some other way. We find something that sets us apart from others. We're smarter. We got into a certain kind of school. We have a good job and make lots of money. We're a good parent. We're more faithful in our religion than others. We'll use just about anything to establish our worth. People who aren't religious at all do this just as much as religious people. Atheists feel like they are fair-minded and good citizens. Hollywood stars pride themselves as social activists. Tony Soprano says, I may kill lots of people, but I'm a good son. Everybody looks for things to justify their worthiness. For most of us, life is like one big Survivor episode where we are trying to convince God and everyone else why we are not the ones who should be thrown off the island. The things we use to establish our worthiness can be called functional saviors. Why religious change doesn't work. Religious change, no matter how well-intentioned, doesn't work for three primary reasons. Number one, religious activities fail to address the root idolatries that drive our sin. As its root, our sins are driven by the fact that we desire something more than we desire God. Religious change targets the acts of sin without addressing the idolatry that prompted that sin in the first place. In fact, a lot of times, religion simply becomes another way to get hold of that thing we most desire. 
Let me give you an example. Tim Keller tells of a notoriously sexually promiscuous kid he knew in college. The young man's sexual prowess was about more than lust, however. Gaining notches on his bedpost was a source of identity to him. It proved he was a man, gained the admiration of his peers, and gave him a sense of power over women. During his junior year, this guy got involved with a campus ministry and got saved. He quickly got on fire for Jesus and gave an inspiring, bold testimony of his new commitment to Christ. However, Keller says, there was still something off about this guy. He was not a very enjoyable person to be around. If you were in a discussion with him, he had to show you why he was right and you were wrong. In a small group, he wanted to recognize his opinions as insightful. He always wanted the positions of prominence. The guy had all the external signs of love for Jesus. He had repented of his sexual promiscuity. He went to lots of Bible studies and witnessed boldly for Jesus. However, it was apparent that he had simply stated traded sex for religion as the outer manifestation of his true desire. What he really wanted, his root idol, was power over others. This is not a conversion to Christ. This is a new means of pursuing an old idol. True worship is obedience to God for no other reason than that you delight in God. There's a fundamental difference in serving God to get something from him and serving him to get more of him. When I was in college, I had to take at least one course on fine arts to graduate. I remember looking at my options and seeing something on classical music, something on poetry, and something on drama as my choices. Nothing really sounded appealing, but I thought there was a chance that in the drama course we'd get divided up to do skits or something, and that sounded more enjoyable than sitting around listening to records or emoting poetry. Mistake. Half of the course was spent learning the names of obscure French directors, and the other half watching videos of men in tights leap and prance around the stage. Every week I checked my man card at the door before I walked into the class, but I needed a good grade in the course to maintain my GPA, so I toughed it out, studied hard, and managed to pull an A. That was more than 15 years ago. Since that time, a lot has changed. I've gotten married, I have three daughters, and my wife and I now have season tickets to our city's performing arts center where we pay top dollar to see (laughs) theater. Men in tights prance about the stage, and I enjoy it. Not the tights part, but the other stuff. Think about it. How thick is that irony? In college, I used theater as a means to get money. I studied it hard so I could get a good grade, so I could get a good job, so I could make money. But now I use my hard-earned money to get more theater. Theater used to be the means to money. Now is the end of my money. True religion is when you serve God to get nothing else but more of God. Many people use religion as a way of getting something else from God they want, like blessings, rewards, even escape from judgment. This is wearisome to us and to God. But when God is his own reward... Christianity becomes thrilling. Sacrifice becomes joy. In other words, getting religiously active in a church, even in a good one, does not necessarily mean you'll become a true worshiper of God. You may have simply discovered religion to be a more convenient means to other cherished idols like respect, pride, success, a good family, or prosperity. Number two, when our acceptance is based on our performance, we exacerbate 
two root sins in our heart, pride and fear. The exposure of our nakedness implanted in us a deep sense of fear. We sensed that we were not acceptable as we were, which is true. So we felt driven to do something to make ourselves more acceptable to God. But whatever we think makes us better than others, we feel proud about, and that leads us to more sin. Pride gives rise to violence, impatience, intolerance, judgmentalism, and many other vices. Of course, on the one hand, when we don't feel like we measure up to others, we despair. Our sense of nakedness and fear of rejection grows. This leads only to more fervent attempts to distinguish ourselves from others and jealousy and hatred of those around us. Our despair creates a void that we often turn to the lust of the flesh to fulfill. Despair over our soul's nakedness drives people to crave drugs, alcohol, creature comforts, etc., It turns people into workaholics, serial romantics, and obsessive parents. While performance-based acceptance thrusts us into a cycle of pride and despair, acceptance by God's grace produces exactly the opposite fruits. The assurance of God's presence and approval takes away our sense of nakedness and our craving for their approval. We are complete in Him. We are even free to let others see our faults because we know we already have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters anyway. We become gracious and kind towards others because we are aware of how much we've been forgiven. We are not afraid to lose all we have because in Him we have all we need. The third reason religious change doesn't work has to do with its sustainability. Number three, the insecurity of always wondering if we've done enough to be accepted causes resentment of God, not love for him. As I noted at the beginning of the book, when I first became a believer, I constantly felt guilty about things I needed to do better to become a good Christian. Despite my fervency, my love for God was not growing. Truth be told, I didn't want to get closer to God. He'd just point out something else I should be doing before he'd approve of me. So I wanted to keep him paid off and at a great distance so I could be at peace. As Martin Luther, the great reformer, noted about himself, my fear of God's judgment was producing a hatred for him that was driving my heart farther and farther away from him, even if my actions looked on the surface more godly. That's because true love for God cannot grow when we are unsure about his feelings for us. All of our service for God will be done with an eye to elevating our status before him. Ultimately, this is not love for God. It's love for ourselves. Charles Spurgeon told a story illustrating this. Once upon a time, a very poor carrot farmer lived on a small farm in rural England. During one harvesting season, he unearthed the largest carrot he had ever seen. He thought, now that is a carrot that befits a king. So he traveled to the king's palace, obtained an audience, laid the carrot joyfully at the king's feet. O king, he said, you have always been such a wonderful, fair, and gracious king to me, and I love you very much. As a token of my love for you, I want you to have this carrot. It is a gift which you truly deserve. The king, touched by this man's simple offering, responded, Thank you for this gift. I happen to own the farmland that surrounds your farm, and I would like to give you that land as a gift. Please know that it is also 
a small token of the affection that I have for you, my son. One of the king's noblemen standing in the court that day thought, wow, if the king would give all that farmland in response to a carrot, imagine what he would give for a real gift. So the nobleman went that night and found the most majestic horse he'd ever seen and brought it to the king the next day. The crafty nobleman said, King, you are a wonderful and worthy king. As a token of my love for you, I want, to ha- I want you to have this horse as a gift. The king, being very wise, saw through the ruse and said to the nobleman, Yesterday the poor man was giving the carrot to me, but today you are giving the horse to yourself. When our salvation depends upon our righteous behavior, our righteousness will be driven by a desire to elevate ourselves in the eyes of God. This is not love for God. It's self-protection. The gospel turns religion upside down. The gospel assures us of God's acceptance given to us as a gift earned by Christ's worthiness, not ours. In response to that gift, we are moved to obey. Love for him grows in response to his love for us. The British pastor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once asked his congregation what they would do if while they were away from home one day, a friend who was at their home visiting paid an overdue bill for them. It depends on how much the bill was for, Lloyd-Jones said. If it were a small, unpaid postage on a letter, you'd pat them on the back and say thanks. If the IRS had finally caught up to you after 10 years of unpaid taxes and had come to take you to jail and your friend paid off your entire debt, you would not pat them on the back and say thanks. You would fall at their feet and say, command me. The gospel reawakens us to the beauty of God and overwhelms us with mercy. Our behavior changes because we change. Until that happens, all religious changes will be superficial. Even if you force yourself to act right, your heart will be going the other direction. This is the doctrine of total depravity. The gospel, according to J.D. Let me explain how this plays out in my life. I have certain sins I struggle with, but behind those sins are some deeper sins that usually go unnoticed. One night, my wife and I decided to do some psychoanalysis on me to determine what my most frequently recurring sins and dysfunctions were, and why I struggled so much with them. Note, I would not advise doing this with your spouse unless you have unusually thick skin. From now on, I'm doing this alone. Anger. She pointed out that I get most angry when I either A, feel like I'm losing an argument, or B, someone is making me look stupid. That is because we determined I need people to admire me and I feel, however right or wrong, that my intelligence is a key component to gaining their respect. Behind my flashes of anger is an idolization of the admiration of others. I need the admiration of others in order to have happiness and value. The approval of others is my functional God and functional Savior. God's presence and love are not sufficient for me. Overwork and neglect of family. I overwork because I desperately want to be successful. And why do I need to be successful? Because I believe that if I'm successful, that I'll have the approval of others. Where does my worry come from? We determine that my worry usually arises from the fear that I'm not going to be the success that I want to be. The church is going to fail. I'm going to be a laughingstock. I'm going to only be mediocre. But again, why do I need to be successful to stand out from the crowd? because I need to be admired by others. Depression. When do I get depressed? It's usually after I preach a bad sermon. 
And it's not that I'm just frustrated that my people didn't get the message. I am devastated because my identity is built on my skill and reputation as a preacher. If I am a good preacher, then people will admire me. Lying. The temptation for me to lie arises, my wife and I determined, from two places. I lie to cover up my shortcomings and exaggerate my accomplishments. And why do I do that? You know the answer. I lie to keep others happy because I don't want to disappoint them. Being a firstborn type A people pleaser, I don't like to let people down. Because if people are disappointed with me, then they are not approving of me. And they've already established that I can't handle that. My lying is symptomatic of my worship for people's approval. You say, JD, you are one sick dude. I am, but so are you. I'm just brave enough to put it in print. And incidentally, maybe the reason I'm willing to do that is because I think that being so honest will make you admire me for my transparency. Ah, it never ends. In any of these five sins, you can command me, JD, don't be angry, or thou shalt not lie. But you might as well tell a dog not to bark. My problem is that my heart so craves the approval of others that these sins come as instinctively to me as breathing. My insecurity makes me fearful. It makes me be short-tempered. It makes me willing to bend the truth for personal advantage. And even if I could discipline myself not to get angry or worried or lie, I would have only covered up the real problem, that I delight more in the approval of others than I do in the approval of God. I am an idolater. That is my depravity. The laws of God, i.e. commands like JD, don't lie, be depressed, worry, or get angry, tell me what to do, but don't really give me the power to do them, at least to obey them from the heart. What religion is unable to do, God does for us in the gospel. The gospel shows me a God who is better than the approval of others and a God more valuable than their praise. The gospel shows me that God's presence and approval are the greatest treasure in the universe. The gospel reveals God's mercy toward me, and that makes me more merciful with others. Not because I have to be so to gain God's acceptance, but because I am so overwhelmed by his mercy that I can't help but extend that to others. We must saturate ourselves, therefore, in the truths of the gospel. So in the text that follows... I want to give you a tool to do just that. It's a prayer I've prayed every day for several years to immerse myself in the truths of the gospel. I simply call it the gospel prayer. The gospel prayer. First, let me make sure you understand there's nothing magical about this prayer. It's not an incantation to get God to do good things for you. Incidentally, it's also not my attempt to replace the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is simply a tool to help you train your mind in patterns of the gospel. The point is not the prayer. The point is thinking in line with the gospel. The gospel prayer has four parts. The first two lead us inward, helping us to renew our minds in God's acceptance of us and the value of that acceptance to us. Number one, in Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Number two, your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Part three of the prayer has us consider what responding to the grace of the gospel looks like. 
understanding God's generosity toward us should lead us to radical generosity toward others. Number three, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. And then part four of the prayer helps us to see our world through the lens of the gospel and moves us to audacious faith. If the cross really does reveal God's compassion for sinners and the resurrection reveals his power to save them, then our prayers on their behalf should be audacious and bold. Number four, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. I've prayed this prayer every day now for the last few years. And you know what? It's finally starting to sink in.